I was born under Hitler in 42 and grew up under Stalin. My mother kissed me. She had no idea whether she'd ever see me again. I said, Dad, only one other guy ever got into harm from Queens College. I almost flunked and I was scared to death. And that's how I got involved in IR. All of a sudden, the clouds parted. I mean, it was almost magical. I was on call every night. And of course, those were that was the heyday of GI bleeders. My iliac balloon made the rounds in the city by taxi cab. I was lucky enough to have a curious mind. And whenever an instrument didn't work, I kept thinking, you know, is this the best we can do? It's it's uh, it's been one hell of a ride. Oh, first of all, how's your um, clavicle? This was my second attempt to destroy it in less than a year. I first did it skiing in February. I was skiing in Lech in Austria. You know, it hurt like hell. I knew something really bad happened because I was on a double black diamond, ungroomed, run off the top of the mountain. <laughs> which 80-year-old people shouldn't be doing. And uh, I went flying and I landed on my shoulder and I felt, first of all, I, I got knocked out. When I woke up about 30 seconds later, I realized that this was the worst pain I have ever had. And I've had all kinds of things, Achilles, stairs, shoulder uh, repairs, and you name it. Wow. So anyway, I for two days I nursed it and then I went back to skiing. I was like, it's not so bad. So then we came home and eight weeks after I heard it, I said to Shelly, two radiologists. I said, Shelly, you know, it still hurts like hell. We got an x-ray. Not only did I have a fractured clavicle, but also two fractured ribs. How the hell I planted a pole with all that is still beyond me. And then about a month ago, I went biking with her out in the Hamptons. And we usually do 40 miles, almost 40 miles out on the beach. And of course, I uh, took my eye off the road for a split second and went off the road into the sand. Needless to say, the bike stopped, but I didn't. Ambulance, police, you name it. And I refractured the old fracture because it was so out of position. It never healed properly. Anyway, so here we are. Aren't you glad you asked? Yeah, I am glad. And I'm kind of curious, like, were you always um, a bit of a daredevil? You know, um, the answer is I, in spite of the fact that I um, had a uh, childhood under, well, I was born under Hitler in 42 and grew up under Stalin up until he died in 53. And then Khrushchev, who was a little better. But basically, and I, I, my parents told me to be afraid <laughs> under appropriate circumstances. But at the same time, I had an incredible upbringing in that my father was virtually a fearless person. I mean, he literally, in 1944, at the worst of the worst time, when, um, first of all, my family didn't even, not only didn't practice Judaism, but we were all christened in, you know, in the late 80s, 1880s, but Hitler didn't care, nor did his Hungarian gangsters. And so everybody was dumped in the ghetto. And my father, 
who practiced medicine with false papers through the entire war, marched into the ghetto with false papers and false orders and marched out 15 members of my family and hid them uh, in Buddha in the hilly part of the city. Now, I don't have to tell you what they would have done to him <laughs> if they figured it out. So, you know, I grew up with this mix of appropriate fear, which was excessive, but a sense of uh, you, you can do anything if you work hard enough and try hard enough. And I had the good fortune of being sent to a uh, very, very rare, unique uh, summer camp. The woman who ran it was obviously not part of the party. And this was all totally private and hush-hush. So, uh, the, the Hungarian soldiers practiced uh, with their military boats on, a, on the lake where we used to go swimming. And so we <laughs> lifted one of their boats singing communist songs. And, and the, the thing became so successful that the uh, leaders of the Communist Party actually sent their kids to the camp. And when they came visiting, everybody had to go up in the hills and uh, play other games so that we wouldn't be seen or heard. <laughs> How old were you at this point? I uh, started in the camp in the early 50s, so I was about 10. And uh, I, I went there until we escaped in 56. But um, then another uh, example of my fearlessness <clears throat> was um, the kids in the class knew that I was not part of the system. So they elected me leader of the class of the young pioneers. I was supposed to organize, my prime job was to organize meetings to celebrate the, uh, all the great communist holidays and the birthdays of Lenin, Stalin, the Hungarian communist leaders, etc. And of course, I took the kids to play soccer. And everything was fine for a couple of years until somebody squealed. And then all hell broke loose. And, you know, we underestimated the system. We thought that we were being cute. But they uh, indicted me. And uh, I was told to appear at a certain time in one of the classrooms. And the student leader of the young pioneers, where they essentially told you to, uh, or, or taught you to spy and uh, betray your parents if they did or said anything that was against the party line. Somebody squealed, so they had this big trial. Tom, what were you doing? I, what were you doing wrong? Like, what was the communist? Party. Okay, so the, so the charge was that I was playing soccer instead of celebrating um, somebody's birthday. I mean, that was, the, uh, that was the specific charge. But in general, the betrayal was that I never celebrated anything or never organized celebrations for anything. And uh, it began to dawn on me that this was not a joke when I walked into that room and Everybody who was anybody in that uh, communist organization was there. And they had the shades drawn and they had witnesses. The uh, teacher's desk was always on a pedestal, like a stage. And uh, behind him, you know, are the uh, photos of Lenin Stalin and the Hungarian communist leader. And uh, there I am. And the thing was covered with green felt. 
I mean, if they had put a crucifix on it, it could have been the Inquisition. Uh, long story short, they uh, sentenced me to be thrown out of the Young Pioneers and uh, my red tie kerchief taken away. And the only use I ever had for that damn thing was that the kerchief had hanging uh, things just like the uh, Boy Scout thing. So it, it was very convenient to chew on the tips while you were taking an exam mm -hmm. and it was completely frayed. So they went bananas, you know, that not only had I betrayed the party, but I was besmirching um, a piece of the glorious red flag. So anyway, they threw me out. So that night, my parents who were divorced, my dad called me and he said, so how was school today? And I said, well, I got thrown out of the pioneers and I heard, <laughs> and he said, do you have any idea what that means? And I said, yeah, I think I do. He said, what do you think? Remember I was 13. And I said, I think it means that I'm never going to go to gymnasium or university and that I'll be lucky to be a street sweeper. I said, you're right. So then uh, each school had to send a certain number of kids to gymnasium. And of course, the rep not only the reputation, but the continued survival of all these communist apparatchiks and teachers depended on being able to do this. And if they didn't, they would get fired or demoted. I, I lived in a border area where there were kids who were uh, children of the working class, I mean, real proletariat, who didn't have a long tradition of education. These kids were not great students. And then there was this upper middle class bourgeois uh, area from which I came. And so they uh, rehabilitated me, <laughs> restored me to the uh, pioneers and inducted me in the Young Communist League so I could be improve their statistics. But, you know, this gives you a glimpse of the corruptness and the stupidity of what I grew up with. Um, when you guys left uh, Hungary or whatever, you know, I guess it was part of the Soviet bloc, it was in the middle of the night. Like, what was that like? We, um, so in 1939, my grandmother who lived in Bratislava called my parents and said, listen, I think it's time to get out. And uh, she, she said, I'm going to London with my husband. And uh, my uh, father said, well, you know, I just finished uh, my residency and I'm working at the university. You know, what are they gonna do to us? And as if my grandmother said, look, I think you're an idiot, but you know, do as you wish. And then in 46, when things became a little bit more organized after the war, my grandfather flew to Hungary and said to my father, anticipating Churchill's Iron Curtain speech and Stalin's imposing communism and totalitarianism. And she said, you know what? I think it's <laughs> time for you to get out. And my father said, well, you know, we survived Hitler. Everything is cool. Everything's gonna be okay, we are staying. And then in 56, when the revolution broke out, I participated in it. And uh, at first my father said, you know, if things go the way they are with the revolution, we are staying. 
but then the uh, communists uh, returned. The Soviets actually pulled out and uh, for seven days it was relative, you know, it was a triumph. But then the UN had a meeting and Henry Cabot Lodge, who was uh, the UN ambassador for Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles. I was listening on shortwave in our bomb shelter in the, in the building that we lived in, which was our basement. And Henry Cabot Lodge basically said, we sympathize with the greater Hungarian people and their fight, but unfortunately we cannot be of any help. And that second, the Soviets returned and crushed the revolution and executed Imre Nagy, the communist leader who was a liberal communist. And so my father said, okay, we are out of here. Three times is the charm. So he arranged for um, a truck that carried um, milk from the outlying villages into Budapest in these metal can large metal cans. And at night would return to the village, but hiding people who wanted to escape, of course, for a lot of money. And my sister had cerebral palsy. She couldn't escape. So she and my mother stayed behind. And the morning we were supposed to leave at five o'clock, my mother woke me up and said, you're leaving. And I said, what do you mean we are, I'm leaving? She said, you are leaving the country with your father and your stepmother and your half brother. And, you know, it, I didn't have time to even think about it. I gathered up some of my most ridiculous possessions that I could stick in my pocket, which was a game of buttons. We used buttons as soccer players on a table. So I put that in my pocket. Little did I know that my half-brother had silver coins that he was carrying. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so my mother walked me through the city that was occupied by Soviet troops at five o'clock in the morning. And we were really scared that they would find us a little bit unusual and harass or arrest us. But we made it to my father's, which was a good 30 minute walk away. And uh, my mother kissed me. She had no idea whether she'd ever see me again. And under the circumstances, given the history of Hungary and communism, it was more likely than not that she'd never see me. And so, um, so after a great deal of delay looking for the truck, which was a, another joke, we looked, uh, my, my father decided that the proper clothing to escape from Hungary was my ski clothes. But the ski clothes in Hungary in the 50s were, you know, have you seen those old fashioned golfing pants that had a latch on your calf and fell mm -hmm. over and were very baggy. Mm -hmm. so there I was in, in ski pants that looked like that. And, uh, and we, were, we had big backpacks that we were carrying a few cameras my father bought. So we would sell them in Austria. Little did he know that nobody wanted Russian cameras in Austria in 56. Anyhow, so we waited on a street corner worried that we were going to get arrested now for the second fear of the morning. 
anyway, eventually the truck showed up. We all piled in with another couple of families. And uh, after one scare, when the truck driver stopped, and we all thought that it was a uh, inspection, and we all dove down on the floor and held up these massive, really heavy metal cans on, over our heads. And we waited and waited to hear the Soviet or the Russian or Hungarian police or cop or, or soldiers. And eventually we heard the guy taking a leak. <laughs> <laughs> he never bothered to tell us he was stopping just to take a leak. And so we were scared to death. Anyway, we finally arrived in a village near the border that was uh, normally a closed area. You weren't allowed to go even near the border. But things were loose enough now so they could drive us all in. And when it got dark enough, we all snuck into the peasant house and they divided us into groups and we, we were assigned leaders. And when it got completely dark at nine o'clock at night, they led us miles and miles across the frontier. And my mother's stepmother's group actually got caught and they were able to exchange their freedom for some leather and uh, fur coats that my stepmother was carrying. But my father, who already had had hands, you know, was walking with us. And at some point he finally said, you know, I'm just going to lie down and you guys move on. I can't walk anymore. And so I dragged my dad across the border. And we finally got to a point where there were Austrian and Hungarian, little Austrian and Hungarian flags. They, the entire border used to be electrified. And during the revolution, they removed the electrified fence. So all that there were left were these little flags. And the Austrian border guard, as soon as we were 10 yards in, came and my father went to embrace him and gave him a hug and a kiss and came back and he said, you know what? He doesn't have B.O. Because in Hungary, there were no deodorant. <laughs> and people who didn't really wash regularly smelled to high heaven. Anyway, so we were there for a couple of uh, days and then uh, moved on to Vienna where we were unsuccessful in selling any of the uh, things. And my father applied. He was actually invited to go to many different countries in Europe to teach. And he said, you know what? I will not go anywhere where the Soviets can march to. And so he applied to go to Australia because that was the furthest country he could think of. And so a couple of weeks later, when we got the letter or the call, come to the uh, embassy to pick up your papers. So my father went and returned an hour or so later and we said, so when are we leaving? And he said, we're not going to Australia. I said, what do you mean we're not going to Australia? I said, I'm not going among the sheep. So all three of us looked at him and said, what the hell are you talking about? He said, you know, I went to the embassy. I looked around. Remember, this is 1956. I looked around. They had posters, photographs, statues, drawings, paintings of sheep. I'm not going among the sheep. He then applied to the U.S., and the U.S. basically said um, it, it, it was tough enough that he didn't want to come with two kids. 
and my grandmother was still okay living in uh, Hungary, I mean, in, in London. And my father arranged for me to spend a year or two with my grandmother until they could establish themselves because he knew he would have to pass his exams and get a home and get a job, etc. So I came to the United States. By this time, I was uh, 16 in January 59. So I, I went, did a year and a half of high school out in Rockwell Center at Southside. And then I uh, went to Queens College simply because it was the nearest school to where I uh, lived. I had no idea that I could have gone to Columbia or um, whatever. I mean, by this time, my father had taken all his exams. And you know, it was incredible because I came in January. I had to catch up in physics, chemistry, because I went to a mediocre school in London because I missed the 11 plus. So anyway, when I came over here, so my father was still studying for his medical license and he was working full-time as essentially a high-class orderly in an emergency room. And uh, not only was he studying, working, studying for his own boards, but he was catching me up in all my subjects. And, uh, and I ended up on the, on the, in the National Honor Society at the end of the year. And I probably never got grades that good ever again in my life. <laughs> and then when I finally finished um, and I went to Queens College and it was time to apply to medical school. And I, I hated the school. I still had this Germanic fear and hate or the, of, of, even though I didn't get it. And so when it came time to apply to medical school, my father said, so where, where are you applying? And I said, well, you know, in the school, the advisor told me to apply to all the state schools, which are very good. And my father, who really didn't know the American system well enough, but he knew Harvard. And he said, well, aren't you applying to Harvard? I said, dad, only one other guy ever got into Harvard from Queens College. So I don't care. I'm paying the application fee. You're applying. So I, I applied to Harvard. And because I was on the soccer team, I got rejected from downstate because I was being a little too casual. <clears throat> the rest is sort of history. I really, it was, you know, an undeserved ticket of admission to life. It opened every door that I didn't deserve to be able to open, even though I, I must say I didn't enjoy medical school. I didn't know what the hell I was doing there. Um, my, oh, why did I go to medical school? My father who escaped from Hungary always said he took his profession on his back and he wanted me to have a profession that I could take, you know, the refugee mentality. So one day, just before I graduated Queens College or began to apply to school, I said, Dad, you know, I've been thinking about this. I kind of like to go to journal journalism school and be a sports reporter or maybe be a lawyer and go into politics or whatever. Could I do that? And he said, of course. And I was like, really? He said, of course, after you get your MD, you can do whatever <laughs> you like, <laughs> which, I mean, this is the way it went in my family. You know, there was no arguing. With it. What do you think Harvard saw on you? I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, you didn't 
even deserve to get in there? Why do you why do you say that? And what do you think they saw? In okay, you? so a couple of things. One is, in fairness, um, this was I, I applied to medical school in uh, sixty three. Yeah, sixty three. And so the memory of the Hungarian revolution was still very fresh. And like it or not, I'm sure that it didn't hurt me. And the, what else didn't hurt me was that even though I didn't even know there was such a thing as courses you could take to study for the, uh, as, um, the uh, MCATs, which was, were already being done then. And so I, you know, I just walked in cold, took the MCATs, and apparently did well enough to impress Harvard. Um, I also, <clears throat> my record was very, very early. I mean, I was horrendous in chemistry, but good in physics, trigonometry, geometry, anything you could understand or figure out, I was good at. But it was only after my son, who was more dyslexic and had some serious learning issues, which he fortunately overcame. But I never realized that I actually had learning disabilities. I mean, I could read an entire chapter, organic chemistry. And I mean, I was really trying to read it and understand it. And when I finished, I couldn't have told you not only the exact title of the chapter, but vaguely was it about aldehydes or what compounds it was. That's how bad it was. So I didn't, I, I really couldn't memorize. I could figure things out. So the, to the extent that I could figure it out, it was okay. But you know, again, my totalitarian, I called him my Prussian Hungarian father. Um, when I collected a bunch of terrible grades in uh, Queens College, he ordered me out of the house. We lived in the apartment in Forest Hills, way above his office, which was on the ground floor. And he exiled me to the office. And I had to be out of there at nine o'clock in the morning, not return till the last patient left. And then after I did much better that semester, he graciously permitted me to return to the fold. <laughs> But I, you know, I, this memorization was never my forte, even in medical school. And I was scared to death. And there were certain things I hated. I remember when I showed up for my parasitology final, professor looks at me, says, who are you? <laughs> I said, I'm Tom Thus. And he said, so? I said, you know, I'm in this class. He said, really? I've never seen you before. <laughs> so that was medical school. And I spent most of medical school listening to my classical records and going to the Frick Museum, not Frick, the uh, Isabella Gardner, which was very close on the Fenway. I almost flunked. The dean of the medical school actually told me, Uncle Joe Gardella, who was the captain of the Hungarian, uh, the Harvard football team way back before he became dean of students at Harvard Med. And he called me and I said, you flunked just about everything you could in the first year, because I was so scared being at Harvard and all the kids around me were Ivy League. And I was in the dorm. I was, after we came back from whatever we were doing, we'd have dinner in the dining hall. And then I would go, what I said was making rounds and I'd visit all these guys 
every, after 15 to 30 minutes, everybody kicked me out and I would go next door. Well, they all went back to studying. At midnight, I finally got back to my room, closed my eyes, scared to death, didn't go to class. And um, so finally, I, Joe, Uncle Joe called me and said, Tom, you're going to spend the summer here catching up. And you'd better call your father and tell him. I said, Uncle Joe or Dr. Gardella, if I call my father and I tell him that I flunked almost everything, my father's going to kill me. I said, no, 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 he's not. I've heard that before. I said, Dr. Gardella, I'm not kidding. He will kill me. Would you please call him and talk to him? So finally, he looked at me. He said, okay. On the appointed day, I guess my father, I, my, I never spoke to my dad about this. My father came up and I got a call in the dorm from Gardella. Your father's on the way over. You were right. He was going to kill you. <laughs> I think I talked him out of it. And uh, so at the end of the summer, Dr. Gardella called me and said, you know what? No one has ever done as badly in the first year as you and not had to repeat the year. Congratulations. And then progressively things got better as I got into the clinical stuff. And then I took radiology with Morris Simon, who was a fantastic guy at the Beth Israel. He was one of the great chest radiologists. But in addition, what was really wonderful is he was one of the most inventive and innovative people. So as part of chest radiology, he actually invented the Morris Nightnall inferior vena cava filter, which was way ahead of its time. And I was, you know, just in total awe. So I applied to radiology residences. And of course, with Harvard as my calling card, I walked into John Evans's office back in uh, 60, I guess 67. And uh, two other guys, Jim Rini and uh, um, Garth Gregory, also in my medical school class, the three of us came in to apply. And I think there were only five or six residents at the time. Evans, you know, just being who he was, there was no committee. Evans kind of liked all of us. And he said, okay, you're all in. And uh, so that's how I first actually was at, uh, at Montefiore <laughs> interviewing also with Harold Jacobson, who was a very tough cookie. And uh, I, he, he, on, after my interview, he turned to me and said, so Tom, uh, I will accept you, but you have to give me an answer now. And I said, Dr. I, I had no clue. I didn't know he was God. He was the head of the American Board of Radiology before Evans became that. I mean, he was the king of the universe. And I said, well, do you mind if I wait a couple of months until I have a few other interviews? <laughs> and he said, thank you. And I was dismissed. He um, never accepted me. And then I interned at Montefiore, ironically. And he and I became you know, much closer and he was very nice to me. And uh, so, I, I, uh, so I did radiology. And I must say, after the initial enthusiasm, all the puzzle solving, I was like, I have to sit on my ass all day 
even though at five o'clock when I get out, it's still light out. It's kind of, I'm going to die. This is not what I signed up for. And then uh, I took a rotation in uh, then cardiovascular radiology or angio in short. And Harry Baltax and David Levin, they were my mentors. And, Bor and Robin Watson was the head of angio at uh, Memorial. He was an interesting Englishman who was a bit of a uh, snob and a pain in the ass. He called me Dr. Slosh. And when he stood behind me to teach me angio, he would stand behind me. And his teaching method was to kick you in, the, in, in, the, in your leg to remind you that what you were doing was wrong. So he and I never bonded, but thank God he never took over Angel at Cornell. So Harry Baltax from Minneapolis, from Amplatz's program, took over. And so when it came time for me to apply for a fellowship, of course, I loved Angel, I loved Harry and Dave, and I especially loved the whole thing, so I applied. And that's how I got involved in IR. All of a sudden, the clouds parted. I mean, it was almost magical. I, I now, instead of sort of drifting around and thinking I was a complete loser, became focused and I became a good little boy instead of talking back for the first year of my, it was a two-year fellowship funded by the NIH at the time. And uh, instead of being the usual bad boy and talking back and, you know, doing all kinds of things that I wasn't supposed to. Unlike today, I was like a good little doobie. I listened to what I was told. I read, I did my work. And then I cut loose a little bit in the second year. And uh, then, I, then I got a couple of very lucky breaks because I they hired me as an attending after my two-year fellowship at Cornell. And then the next year, Dave Levin uh, moved over to the Peterman Brigham as vice, uh, as second in command to, uh, in IR. And he asked me, do you want to come back to Harvard, you know, give you a job at the Brigham? So I moved back and uh, in March, February or March, Joe Whalen was just taking over from Dr. Evans. And uh, Dr. Evans actually, I can't even remember for sure, but one of them called me and they said, Tom, would you like to come back to Cornell as division chief in IR? And I said, I thought it was Harry Baltex. No, no, Harry took the chairmanship at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. And so we would like you to take his job. So I left the Brigham in early and came back. And it was kind of awkward because Dave Levin, who was much more accomplished than I at that time, had also wanted that job, but he wasn't a Cornell resident. And I guess, I, I think there were two things. One is that I was a Cornell resident. The second thing was that Evans liked me but I think the critical thing was that Joe Whalen had just begun to tinker with CT and two-dimensional anatomy. And Eli Kazam was starting ultrasound and working with Whalen in CT. And Eli was slicing cadavers, frozen cadavers, 
and that was Joel's research. And I'll never forget after I returned, um, the first year I was back, Joe was asked to give the Caldwell Lecture at the American Rengen Ray. And his topic was um, two-dimensional two imaging, um, CT and ultrasound were now the king and Angel was dead. So he basically spent the time running down Angel and saying it's, you know, as a diagnostic tool, it's worthless, it's not necessary. CT was going to totally replace it. And by that time I had begun to do early angioplasties, embolizations, GI bleeders, and I, I was the only attending. I was on call every night. And of course, those were that was the heyday of GI bleeders. But Joe was so focused. He didn't even mention when he said Angel is going to be dead. And he literally said this at the Caldwell lecture. And um, he didn't bother to say that, of course, you know, the angiographers are now doing some interventions and maybe that's going to save their hide and that specialty. And I remember afterwards, there was a huge crowd around him congratulating him. And I being back in my element, walked up to him and said, Joe, that was a great lecture. But I wish instead of saying that Angel was dead, you would have mentioned that we are now getting into all these interventions. And that was really exciting. He gave me a look. And for the next six months, he never ever spoke to me at staff meetings, at conferences, ever. And finally, after six months, when I guess he began to realize <clears throat> that my fights with vascular surgery were real and I needed help to keep angioplasty and to succeed, he began to be a little friendlier and much more supportive. And so we have ended up okay, but boy, those six months were deadly. And I began to understand then why it was that an inexperienced guy like me was given the job because they probably figured, you know, it was never going to last. So that was my introduction. So when you got into the field of like, I guess at that point it was just angiography, did you sort of feel like this was going to just continue to develop and, and lead towards interventions or what attracted you first to that specific field? Well, so by the time I was starting, first of all, um, Charlie Dodder did his first angioplasty in 1963. So it wasn't like a long, long time had passed. Second of all, in the US, it never caught on. It really caught on in Germany with Zeitler in Germany and uh, Olbert in Austria and Van Andel in Holland and then uh, Grenzig uh, in uh, who was German, but in Switzerland. We were beginning to do some early drainage procedures and uh, we were beginning to do some early embolizations with blood clot and, uh, and uh, vasopressin infusions and epinephrine infusions. So I could see that things were going to be interesting. Mm -hmm. But the irony of all this was that there was a, a vascular surgeon called Malcolm Perry who came in 
my second or third year. And he was from Texas, from Lubbock. And uh, the chief of surgery and the dean of students, but he was the same person. And uh, Perry worked for him. And he convinced his chief that angioplasty was pure uh, charlatanism. And uh, it got so bad. I got bad mouthed. I did have some supporters, Irving Wright, who was the discoverer of Coumadin from warf you know, warfarin Coumadin from rat poisoning. And he was in the med medicine department and they had a division of peripheral vascular disease. And those guys very early on became very supportive of me. There was another guy, Jerry Lieberman. Um, and the two of them really supported me. And of course, in those days, I, because I was the only attending, I would go to the um, gastroenterology conferences, the congenital, oh, I did all the congenital heart disease with the pediatric cardiologist. I did all the coronary angiography. So I went uh, to the adult heart disease conference. I went to the medical vascular conference, the GU conference, etc. So I really, for me, that was actually a great education because I became immersed. But I didn't have a whole lot of free time. And my kid had been born in 1980. Uh, so, you know, this was going on just as I became a new father. And, and it, was, it was a little crazy. So I, I, here I was fighting all these wars. And finally, it got so bad that Perry would run around the country telling everybody that at Cornell with angioplasty, they've had nothing but disasters. And at that point, I went to Whalen and I said, listen, you'd better, he was good buddies with the chief of surgery. And I said, you know what? You'd better ask him to come down to radiology. I have about 40 cases of angioplasty that I've done, iliac, SFA mainly, a few popliteal, and I said, you'd better ask him to come down here and we'll go over every case so he can see all the disasters. And believe it or not, they pulled together the conference and we went through every case. And then I said, if Dr. Perry now wants to go around and tell the world about how we are doing, at least he knows the facts. And after that, he became not supportive but at least he stopped these totally random things. However, um, talking about Grunzig, so Grunzig began to have courses in Switzerland to teach people how to do angioplasty. And he had invented a major revolution in angioplasty. The initial catheters that Dada used were one catheter slipped over another coaxially and they serially dilated stenosis, but you could only dilate a narrowing to the largest catheter's diameter. And of course, the puncture side got dilated equally. So it was a pretty dangerous game. And uh, you couldn't really dilate anything very large or large diameter. And uh, so Grunzig came up with the idea of a balloon that dilated concentrically like a sausage. So I uh, wanted to enroll in his course and I, he, he had a, he, he, you had to send him 10 of your best cases. 
and he would go through them. And if he liked your cases, he would invite you. So I got invited to the second course, which was a big deal. And uh, I remember sitting there next to some uh, young cardiologists and surgeons, and he was doing coronary angioplasty. His balloons didn't have a wire lumen. So he would use a guiding catheter and then he'd poke it through the stenosis. It was pretty hairy. It had a little wire at the tip uh, to direct it. And I, and he also had iliac uh, balloons that were, that had a lumen. So I um, came back from the course with a supply of uh, coronary balloons and an eight millimeter, seven French uh, iliac balloon, four centimeter long iliac balloon. And there was, there was none other in the city. And so we re-sterilized everything. <laughs> and uh, the, my iliac balloon made the rounds in the city by taxi cab. As soon as I would finish a case, I sterilized it at the angio club, word got around very quickly and everybody would be calling me, can I borrow your balloon? And I said, listen, only three inflations, don't over inflate. If you rupture it, you're dead. <laughs> and so this went on for a couple of weeks and of course somebody ruptured it. And that was the end of it until USCI Bard began to make the domestic uh, balloons a year later, I think. And uh, Tom, I'm curious that these because I'm, I'm just envisioning these procedures and I just imagine it, they look so much different. I mean, than now, like, did you have anesthesia? What was your sterile equipment like? Like, what was can you just paint a little picture of, of what? Okay, it, so the very first uh, uh, iliac angioplasty I did. So the very first angioplasty I did was actually using what Porstmann, a German design. It was the Porstmann corset balloon catheter. And it was a Teflon uh, catheter with a latex-like balloon that would normally, a, a spherical balloon that would keep expanding until it ruptured. But the corsets were slits in longitudinal slits, about one or two centimeters long in the, uh, in the catheter shaft. And so when you inflated the balloon gently, it expanded, but the path of least resistance was to extend longitudinally against those struts that were being expanded a little bit too. Can you visualize it? Yeah. And so um, I, was I, I got one of these, but I never used it. And I was interviewing Ken Snyderman to be my second attending around this time. Ken had just been interviewed by Charlie Daughter. And so Ken came and I said, Ken, I have an iliac angioplasty scheduled by one of the vascular surgeons who foolishly thinks that I could, maybe I could do it. And uh, I said, I've never seen this Porstmann balloon catheter. Um, what do you think? He said, oh, this morning I just saw daughter use one or yesterday, whatever, at the interview, during the interview. I said, do you think you can talk me through it? And he said, yeah, of course. So the patient came down. So I put this thing in and I put it in place. 
So what about no, anesthesia? Are, no, no anesthesia. What we did have was uh, the OR was always on a standby. And they always had an elevator nearby. The OR was on standby. So if anything happened, up they went. Did Nothing ever happened. I don't think I ever had a patient who landed in. After a while, they got bored doing this and they said, okay, fine, we're not doing that anymore. But, and that was pretty much the custom everywhere in the beginning. So anyway, I go in there, I blow up the balloon, but it was still a little spherical. So basically you were dilating uh, maybe two millimeter length. So, you know, you had to come. And of course it was squirt back and forth. And I finally did what I thought was a good angioplasty. I did some images, I hadn't done squat. So at this point, Ken pipes up and he said, you know, that's not how Dotter does it. I said, really, what does he do? He said, uh, he blows up the balloon and then he yanks on it as hard as he can and pulls it down. I said, Ken, I've heard many people talk about angioplasty. I've never heard anybody say to yank and pull, including Dotter. So, well, he doesn't talk about it, but that's what he does. So I said, well, if it's good enough for Dotter, I guess it's good enough for me. So I blew it up, I yanked on it, and there was this gush of blood out of the puncture site. And I said, hmm, that looks good. And I proceeded to get a picture. I put in the wire, I pulled out the catheter. I was holding pressure and five minutes in the pulse disappeared. So by the time the surgeon came down and said, how did it go? I said, well, the procedure was a success but the artery thrombone. So it was kind of not pleasant to say the least, but he was very gracious. And they operated on the patient and everything was okay. But then it, until I got the Grunzig balloons, I suspended operations. And up to that point, so I was doing coronary angiography, but the day after I returned, I went to my usual adult cardiology conference to show my cases, the coronaries. And I had all, also made the mistake of teaching the cardiologists how to do coronary angioplasty, I mean, angiography. <clears throat> so I came back and they were having a discussion about this patient who had a focal LED lesion. And normally you wouldn't operate on that, but you treat medically. And they had this long conference about that. And I finally said, well, guys, I've seen the future you're just going to put in this balloon and dilate it. And they looked at me, they said, you, you're completely out of your mind. That's total BS. So listen, I just came back from Switzerland and this is what Grunzig is introducing. This is the future. And I put in for a coronary angioplasty for IRB and put on the head of the cath lab, who at that point was only doing cardiac catheterizations, you know, measurements, but no, and geography. So the week after they heard me talk about coronary angioplasty and I introduced this, word was passed around medicine, including cardiology. No more cases sent to SAS. And they cut me off one day to the next. I was done. And so then I, that was when I really began to push the angioplasty and the peripheral vascular stuff. And then of course, the vascular surgeons first tried to kill me. And then when they finally realized that this thing was working, 
they said, well, you know, we are the vascular specialists. So we have to be the ones doing it. Up to that point, we basically had a deal with the hospital that only radiology could do this. But when the surgeons applied the pressure and the dean of students, I mean, the dean of uh, the medical school and the director of surgery was one person. Uh, it didn't take very long before that went by the wayside. And the vascular surgeons, you know, they had their learning curve as did the cardiologists. The cardiologists learned in the coronaries without ever having done a peripheral. And the most awkward part of the cardiology was that by that time, uh, John Lara, who was the king of hypertension and uh, basically invented renin and was, and was a great supporter. He allowed me to do renal angioplasties, but he was also the chief of cardiology and he couldn't uh, get the cardiologist to play ball with me. And since he was not a cardiologist, Lara, he really didn't have the strength to fight them. So that's how I lost the coronaries. And of course, now uh, I had to deal with the vascular surgeons. So it had its charms and funny moments, but you know, I spent my entire life fighting. And uh, I am pleased to say that all those fights resulted in me becoming a pioneer and an inventor because there were no appropriate instruments. And so I was lucky enough to have a curious mind. And whenever an instrument didn't work, I kept thinking, you know, is this the best we can do? Can I improve it? Or can I design something else and replace it? And that's how I did everything. And so that was very fortuitous. And so then I, you know, all along I became also very active in SIR and I became uh, course director of the uh, course. And I remember, I always thought it was horrible that during the uh, lectures, it's okay to use slides, obviously, but during the practical stuff in the workshops, it became, there were two or three people giving the workshop and everybody gave like a triumph of all their great cases and never really taught anything. And remember the audience by this time was fairly comfortable. And I issued an edict, no slides in the workshop. And of course, everybody went bananas, except for Scott Trenatola, who later told me that to this day, he doesn't use slides in workshops because he agreed with me that it totally perver perverted the uh, whole point. And so instead of me showing all my great cases, what I would say is, okay, so, you know, when I do an uh, iliac angel, everybody's seen an iliac angioplasty. It was more important for me to really talk about with them and to say, well, do you guys have any questions about the balloon sizing or whatever as it came up? And it became a real wonderful um, feedback conference instead of me lecturing. And that's how I got onto that. And then I, then I got elected president and um, I got the gold medal for uh, lifetime achievement. I got a bunch of other medals and honors, but actually, well, you will be the first to know. I was just called a couple of weeks ago and uh, I was told that I'm the 
2023 recipient of le the award leadership award for innovation. Oh wow! Congratulations! Congratulations! Thank you. I mean, that was the only award that eluded me, and so before I croak, I'll be getting that award. So I must say, it's it, it's uh, it's been one hell of a ride, and uh, I it continues, and I keep inventing and. And I recently, for this, for the my retirement party, I've, I've been looking through all my stuff, photographs, awards, uh, firsts, and I must say, I was astonished at how many firsts my team had introduced. Now you know, I'm, again, I think that I was responsible in some measure for either picking the right people and cultivating the right uh, attitude toward research and writing, but also suggesting a lot of the topics. So we wrote the first series on renal angioplasty of anyone, and that was in the New England Journal. I um, likewise for renal transplant angioplasty, I co-wrote with uh, some people from Montefiore the first paper on baloney angioplasty. Um, Neil Kionani wrote two wonderful papers on research into uh, the appropriate dosing of urokinase. So it's been a wonderful life. And while um, I was very hesitant to retire. I, I, I have to say Dr. Min really allowed me to retire in a gradual way. And ironically, the last case I ever did was two days before retirement with Dave Trost appropriately. And it was a four-year-old with severe focal renal artery stenosis, whose blood pressure was at four years, 200 over 120. And uh, when we dilated, the lesion was not responding. And fortunately, back in 1985, we had had a few cases in children and one case of tachyasis where we dilated and it looked like hell. But we knew we had fully blown up the balloon and what I didn't want to do is to rupture the artery or cause some other harm. So I said, you know what, we're just gonna have to let go and we'll see what happens. And we had follow-up on every one of those cases, angiographic follow-up. Believe it or not, at six months, all of them remodeled and became widely open. And so the pediatric cardiologist who sent me the kid was new, young woman. And when I told her this story, because at, at one month, the kid was, not, you know, the blood pressure hadn't responded. And she was incredibly skeptical. And I have to tell you about two weeks ago, I got an email from her. The kid's blood pressure is 120 over, or, whatever, or 110 over 90, no, 60, which is almost normal. And it's probably still getting better. So cool. And that was a very uh, appropriate, scary, because at first I was like, come on, I can't end my career on a case like that. Right. But I did. 
Tom, I have a, that's so cool. I have a few questions um, uh, that I'm hoping to get your insight on. One is, you know, for residents or young attendings, what advice do you have for them? Well, I I, I would give this the, as the first advice to anybody who wants to go into medicine or any walk of life, but especially invasive medicine. You're only as good as your team. And when you screw up, they were there. When I screwed up, they were there to help me. And I think that's very, very important. The second thing is, going back to my childhood, um, I was always I was always interested in developing new techniques, new technologies, new procedures. And even though everybody would either tell me in front of me to my face or behind my back that I was nuts. I did it anyway, but I always made sure that it wasn't as insane as others might have perceived. I played out the odds for succeeding versus not, and I did it. Now it became sort of one of the slogans, just do it. You remember the old Nike uh, logo? And under it, it said, just do it. So decades ago, Dave Trost took one of those Nike things and stuck it on my office door. And I became the just do it. So for residents and fellows, in the beginning, when you don't know what the hell you were doing, I think, especially in invasive procedures, you really need to be humble and first learn all the basics. And it is only after you have learned the basics that you should be um, preoccupied with your own ideas, innovations, technologies, techniques, etc. There are very, very few who are such geniuses that they really don't need to go through the steps. And I certainly don't think I was one. I was humble for an unusually long time when I was learning how to do this and appropriately scared. Because don't forget, I was starting out doing coronary angiography and the equipment in those days was not what it is today. And if you screwed up, you could screw up big time. And I always said when people came to me and, and this goes with the humility or, and with learning, people would come to me and say, you know, I, I really had a terrible case. That was such a nightmare. And I said, you know what? You didn't have a nightmare. Your patient had a nightmare. You're gonna go home, had a great dinner, have a drink of wine and do whatever. It's your patient who's going to be suffering. And so I always taught the fellows and the residents to be very aware of the responsibility Tom, you've been a leader of a very successful organization. You've worked, as you mentioned, with John Evans and, and Dr. Min, and et cetera, a lot of great leaders. Does it, anything jump out at you as to some of like the keys to really effective leadership? What what sets the great leaders apart? I, I've recently had the occasion to talk to uh, people starting out. Um, and uh, I think that the most important thing that I've told, these these are, you know, not beginners, and they were asking about life lessons. 
And what I basically said, in addition to all the stuff that I've already told you, I think that one of the fundamentals of life that is underrated is that in every aspect of your life, you must be brutally honest with yourself. I really, <clears throat> I really think that there are too many people who fool themselves and on very important things. So I think that to be honest, brutally honest, is the most important requirement of a leader. And then it really goes back to enjoying yourself. You know, I, I perhaps overemphasized the choices between uh, personal and professional. Because the reality is, yes, I've always had fun. And I always made a point to say that you have to have fun, which is not to say that I didn't have fun almost every single day doing procedures, being at work, uh, discussing cases, teaching. To me, that was fun. And actually, Rob Men asked me um, about five or six years ago, he said, Tom, everybody your age is long gone. What the hell are you still doing here? And I said, no, Rob, I know you're not going to believe this, but I come here to play. Sorry. Oh, no. Well, I just wanted to ask, like, I mean, you, you've had such a great career, and I mean, this has all been so fascinating, so thanks for sitting down with us. If you could pick, like, what would be sort of like the rose and thorn of your, of your career, right? the high and low, like one point in time that you sort of think about? Um, you know what? I think that there were so many different aspects to my career that um, there were such great highs. I have really been very fortunate that I could have just as easily flunked out of college with organic chemistry that I actually had to repeat, believe it or not. Uh, and I had already been accepted by Harvard Med School when I flunked organic. And I took, uh, without telling my father, who was going to for, for sure kill me, um, I took a Greyhound bus. In this pants I was wearing when I got the news and I had a shirt and I scraped together enough money to pay for a Greyhound bus. I stayed at a Y in Boston. I had nothing. I had no soap, no razor, nothing. Uh, and I, they lent me a razor. I shaved and I went in to speak to the above mentioned, or previously mentioned, Dr. Gardella. And I said, Dr. Gardella, I just flunked organic chemistry. Does that mean that you will withdraw my acceptance? And he said, well, you'd better get your ass in summer school and pass it. <laughs> Otherwise, you're right. And of course, somehow I struggled through it. But, I, you know, I already knew then that this stuff was just not for me. And I set out to prove that you didn't have to know chemistry to be a good doctor, which sort of goes back to aspects of my career. So um, there are so many things that have been fun, uh, the teaching, the, res the research, the clinical research, and maybe a little more than that, new procedures that I helped. You know, doing the first renal angioplasty when I had no idea, nor did anybody, what in the hell was going to happen when I blew up the balloon? <laughs> and yes, the OR was waiting. And uh, so there were so many highlights and I have to say, 
Not that I'm in any way perfect, but I can't remember too many low lights. Really, I'm an optimist and I've always said, if I were to have an epitaph, it would have been, it's been good, it's been bad, but it was never boring. <laughs>